Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I think uh, because of the fact, you know, that you are basically often sort of on the outside uh, looking in. So if you are, say, as I was in my case, the son of a Nigerian father and a Polish mother, obviously for the, and I was, I was raised in Nigeria. I grew up, I was born in Nigeria. I lived in Nigeria until I was 17. So I went to primary and secondary schools in Nigeria. And so obviously for the Nigerian kids around me, I always was different, you know, a little bit different. Uh, And so that, you know, you feel that clearly, obviously. Uh, So in my case, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't know, walking with my um, mom on the streets or something and, you know, and people uh, make comments about, you know, her being white. Uh, not necessarily nasty comments, but they simply, you know, point to it. And um, uh, for, for people, it, it was something interesting, so to say. And so you feel that, you feel that sense of um, otherness, you know, that you're not really, um, you know, seen as one of us in the sense of one of the people in the community. Hi. I'm Francesca Spector, and you're listening to Alonement, the podcast that broadens the conversation around alone time. Each episode, I ask my guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. At the heart of every episode is one central question. What turns solitude into a good or bad experience? Because when alone time isn't lonely... It's alonement. It's the penultimate episode of the season, and my guest is Dr. Remy Adekoya. I was fascinated to find out through Remy's work that a third of British people will be mixed race by the end of the century. His brilliant new book, Biracial Britain, A Different Way of Looking at Race brings together stories of biracial British people from all ages and mixed race backgrounds, together with Remy's own experiences and expert academic research in racial and ethnic identity. During this episode, Remy tells me about his experience growing up Polish-Nigerian. He also tells me about his biracial identity and how it's essentially become a superpower, offering him multiple vantage points to navigate the world. But that doesn't mean it's always been easy. Growing up biracial can also be a source of loneliness, he tells me, where you struggle to be accepted within racial communities and question who you are and where you belong. This was an incredibly honest and eye-opening interview, which will not only resonate with those who are mixed race, 
but anyone who's ever questioned where they fit as an individual within a certain community. So just about everyone. I hope you get as much from this interview as I did and enjoy listening. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me today. I have been really enjoying your book. I think our themes, even though ostensibly you wouldn't think that our books have a lot in common, what occurred to me from reading your book is that there's almost an overriding theme of that relationship between what it means to be, you know, not not only a biracial person, but also an individual navigating a community or indeed navigating multiple communities. How do you think that that is a unique experience as a biracial person? So I think uh, because of the fact, you know, that you are basically often sort of on the outside uh, looking in. So if you are, say, as I was in my case, the son of a Nigerian father and a Polish mother, Obviously, for the and I was I was raised in Nigeria. I grew up. I was born in Nigeria. I lived in Nigeria until I was seventeen. So I went to primary and secondary schools in Nigeria, and so obviously for the Nigerian kids around me, I always was different. You know, a little bit different, uh, and so that you know you feel that clearly. Obviously, uh, so in my case, you know, I mean, I'm I don't know walking with my, uh, my mom on the streets or something, and you know, and people uh, make comments about you know her being white. Uh, not necessarily nasty comments, but they simply, you know, point to it. And um, uh, for, for people, it, it, it was something interesting, so to say. And so you feel that, you feel that sense of um, otherness, you know, that you're not really, um, you know, seen as one of us in the sense of one of the people in the community, you know. And as I try to point out in the book, this is not always because people want you to feel bad, you know, or people want to marginalize you. You simply are something different to them you know, and it's human nature to sort of, you know, implicitly or explicitly and um, point that out, not always because they're trying to, like I say, you know, make you feel bad. What actually magnified the situation for me is that, and, and this is key, this is important, really, I was essentially raised as an only kid. So I have a much older stepbrother, uh, same father and a different mother, but he wasn't living with us while I was growing up. So, yeah, so raised essentially as a single child. So that even makes it more difficult in the sense that, you know, if you have brothers and sisters around you who are also mixed race, who are also like you. So, you know, you share you'll be sharing those experiences every day after school, etc. And you don't feel so alone with it, you know, so to say, which is the theme of this podcast. But I was, you know, essentially on my own from this point of view. Of course, I had friends in school and friends um, who lived in our neighborhood that I played football with and things like that. But at the end of the day. Uh, especially in your younger years, you know, 9, 10, 11, you do tend to spend a lot of time at home because, uh, you know, your parents don't want you going out. They prefer you, you know, staying at home, you know, studying, etc. And so this did lead to a lot of times in which, you know, I was alone at home. I'd be sitting in my room and I did feel different um, from people um, from people around. And it was a often a lonely experience. Like I see from the biracial angle and also from being raised as a, as a single child. I think that's a really important distinction that I hadn't thought about because of course you know if you are if you are biracial you know as you are Polish Nigerian then you know at least if you had siblings you would be you would have the community within your family of that being something that defines you and knowing what that experience was like for others to navigate 
in your book, you interview so many different biracial individuals and, you know, there's stories of people who quite often don't feel accepted by one community or the other, which, you know, which I think is such powerful stories to tell and such important stories to tell. But you also speak about being biracial in a privileged way because it gives you, as you write, a ticket into multiple worlds. And you also say it gives you different vantage points from which to view the world, not just from one community. In that sense, do you think that perhaps aloneness is a privilege? You know, like, like, like with everything, there's good sides and bad sides. So that's, that applies also to biracialism. So, of course, you know, the bad sides are the fact that you are vulnerable uh, from a point of view, which is very important to, to human nature and probably to 99% of people. And that's that uh, need for acceptance and need for a sense of belonging, you know, even for a sense of belonging to a wider group. You know, I guess it's something maybe even, I don't know, evolutionary biology probably instilled in us, this sort of we feel safer in larger groups. You know, and so that feeling that, oh, you know, there's this group I belong to. So, you know, I don't know if maybe a war starts tomorrow. You know, there, there's this tribe which will be behind me, which will be with me. I won't be on my own. You know, I, I, it's something probably, you know, coded up there in our heads. And that is a deep need um, that people have. So, you know, so you sort of from that front, you can suffer on that front. But then on, on the good side uh, is the fact that you have these multiple vantage points. Like I say, I'm perfectly capable of seeing the world uh, through the eyes of the average white person, which uh, probably no, I would argue, black person is capable of doing simply. Uh, And uh, I'm also perfectly capable of seeing uh, the world through the eyes of an average black person, which probably no white person is capable of doing, you know, and not just seeing it, you know, from that sort of intellectual level, yeah, because, you know, we can read books, you know, white people can read books about how black people view the world and black people can read books about how white people view the world. And they can even understand it on an intellectual level. Yeah. But it's different to be able to feel it on an emotional level. Yeah. So I can feel the world on an emotional level the way an average black person feels it and the way an average white person feels it, you know. Uh, because, of course, of growing up um, uh, with parents uh, with a Nigerian father and a Polish mother. So that definitely is an advantage. Um, uh, as I pointed out at the end, I think it was one of the huge strengths of, 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 of Obama, why he was able to, you know, to, to get elected, basically, you know, coming from a group which de facto makes up just 12% of the U.S. population. If we look at it from that point of view, African-Americans make up just, quote unquote, 12% of the U.S. population. So it's quite rare to be honest, very often for someone who comes from a minority group within a society to be able to actually, you know, win a national election and become president, you know, not just in America, but in many other places, you know. Um, And so, but he was able to do that because of that fact that he was able to, you know, putting it simply, speak to um, white voters in their language and speak to black voters in their language, yeah. So there's definitely um, pluses to it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very powerful statement. Uh, And, you know, you write this in the book to say that Obama was able to have such a unique pull with people because of his biracial identity. Although, of course, very interestingly, he identifies publicly as the first black president of the US rather than the first biracial president of the US, whereas someone like Meghan Markle, who you also mention, or Kamala Harris, it, you know, they, they identify as biracial. 
Yeah, that's true. And, you know, and the, um, so I, I talk about that also. And, you know, the, the sort of the debate is evolving. So, of course, Obama here, we're talking 2008 when he, um, so 2007, essentially, when he announced he was going to run. So that's when the whole, you know, debate started around, oh, you know, is he black or not? Or, you know, mixed race or, you know, what exactly is this creature we are dealing with here called, you know, Barack Obama? And uh, so at that point in time, you know, it made sense from him, for him, you know, for historical reasons, for psychological reasons and for political reasons to essentially emphasize his blackness and not his mixed raceness. And for, you know, so for, for, for historical reasons and psychological reasons, you know, Obviously, I do believe he identifies strongly with the black community. You can see that, you know, in his writings. But also he knew that if he was to identify his mixed raceness, as it would seem, you know, some white commentators were sort of asking why he wasn't doing this at the beginning, he would have faced, Francesca, you see, accusations from the black community of trying to distance himself from blackness. You know, they'd have said, ah, oh, so this is, you know, one of those mixed race people who we've seen in history. And there have been, you know, people like this in history who, you know, who being mixed have tried to distance themselves from blackness because of that fact that in the, you know, informal racial hierarchy, which exists, it's informal, but it exists. Black people are at the bottom of that hierarchy. White people are at the top of that hierarchy. Everybody else is somewhere in between. And so there have been instances in history, not just one or two, of mixed race people who, especially if they're very light skinned, have distanced, have tried to distance themselves from blackness. And so the black community is very sensitive to that, you see. So if Obama had emphasized that, well, you know, actually, you know, I have a white mom, white grandparents, I was raised by them, he would have faced accusations immediately from the black community that, ah, you know, he doesn't actually really even identify with us. He doesn't even think he's one of us. He probably thinks he's better than us, you know, because he has some white in him. That would have lost him votes it would have complicated um, his whole sort of um, political campaign. Whereas emphasizing simply that he identified black didn't cost him anything, you know, because the white people still saw him as mixed race anyway, okay, because they still knew the history. They still knew he was raised by a white mom and grandparents. So they still saw him as mixed race anywhere. But the black people were allowed to, were, were, were able to say, ah, okay, you know, he identifies with us. He considers himself one of us. So, you know, we can lend him our support. We can lend him our votes. If we vote him into the office, he's going to, you know, uh, um, uh, run the presidency or, you know, think of himself as, as one of us. And so that was the safest political way for him to actually do it, you know. Absolutely. And I understand the political logic behind that uh, and yet what you're saying in the book is that you hope that we go on to identify a more open-minded approach because you know, as you write uh, Britain will be 30% mixed race by the end of this century um, with that figure rising to 75% in 2150. To be mixed race it quite literally is the future so you say and, and I love this line you write our energies will be best spent not on trying to render racial identities irrelevant, but on trying to figure out how we can navigate our identities and divisions in a manner offering the greatest opportunity possible for the individual to thrive. Why do you think we find that so difficult 
It is because of the fact that historically, if you look at, you know, um, uh, human history, we've always been divided into these, you know, large in-groups and out-groups, you know. So like I wrote there, you know, in the past, you know, people were divided along the lines of, you know, religion. You had the, the, the Muslim world, the Christian world, and, and you know, hundreds of years ago, people were divided, divided along those lines. And people were divided along lines of kingdoms, you know. You always had we's and they's. And that's how people are used to thinking, like I said, probably from, from, from when um, we started as humans, you know, hunting in packs. So we've always had our tribes, you know, to protect us. So this is something which is instinctual, which still um, exists in people. And so we are used to operating, having these sort of um, uh, big groups. And, you know, which group do you belong to? Aha, that's, I know how to position you. And I know how to position myself depending on, you know, which group I belong to. Um, and we mixed race people, as I, as I say in the book, muddy those waters. We make things very complicated, you know, because you have somebody, so, you know, what, is this person black or white or what? You know, I mean, which group does he belong to? Can we count on his loyalty or not? You know, what, what's going to happen? Like I said, when the chips are down, you know, if there's a war tomorrow, what's going to happen? Are they going to fight on our side or on their side, you know? And so and so we, we, we complicate these things. And on, so of course, as individuals, we are stuck in between these huge group conflicts, you know, these conflicts between black and white, between, you know, Indian and Chinese, between um, uh, the Jews and the Arabs, for instance, in the Middle East, you know, we're stuck in between those big conflicts because the people who are, who are monoracial, where there's no sort of ambiguity, as to, as, to, as to who they are, they know which group they're in and they know, you know, what's going to happen if, if, a, if a war breaks out tomorrow, which side they're going to fight on, so to say. Uh, and we sort of, you know, muddy those waters. And because historically there were so few of us, we didn't have the power to resist these identity norms imposed by the large monoracial groups. We just had to adapt to them. You know, so people like um, people like myself, definitely growing up, like Obama, as he, you know, he just had to adapt. You know, he had to read the situation. Okay, how do white people perceive these things? Okay, how do black people perceive these things and perceive me? Aha. So this is the safest bet for me to be able to, you know, navigate my way around these waters. You know, I can't always really see what I really think. I have to say things which will, you know, not offend the particular group which might be most accepting of me and may not make my life more difficult you know, more complicated than it already is. Uh, but as our numbers are growing, as I point in the book, you know, there's more and more of us now. So there's one, people feel bolder, mixed race people feel bolder to sort of, you know, and as you gave the example of, of Meghan Markle, to now openly, you know, identify that, you know, she's actually um, uh, identifies as biracial. And even though it did cause um, uh, discussion and debate here, you know, what does that mean, etc. Oh, no, but actually she's black or oh, actually, no, she's actually not really black and all that. And uh, she was able to say that. And uh, even though, so there are still some people today who refer to her as black, you know, they will say, oh, a, a black princess, even though she describes her, self-identifies as biracial, she was able to say that. So in some, to some extent, that is a sort of evolution in that, in that debate. And, you know, and the more there are of us who come out and say, look, I am mixed X and Y, and that has shaped my life experience, okay? That has really determined who I am. Not the particular race of my father only, or the particular race of my mother only, but being a combination of both cultures and races. That has shaped who I am. And I am not saying this because I'm trying to show I feel better than X group or I feel better than Y group or because I want to distance myself from X group or feel or associate myself more with Y group. I'm simply saying it because this is what has shaped my life experience. And, you know, I don't want to offend anybody by saying this, but if anybody feels offended by saying this, then I can't really pretend I think that is my problem. Okay. That is probably the person's problem. Because as long as I know I have good intentions, I'm not coming out trying to put any group down, then I should be able to say how I feel 
and not have, we shouldn't all mixed race people of us, you know, have to be politicians in the sense of, you know, be political about, you know, how we say we feel, just not to offend this or that group as if we're all, you know, running for president. Yeah, well, Obama had to do that because he was running for president, but I'm not running for president. So I should be able to say how I feel without being afraid of offending any particular, you know, racial constituency. Yeah. And yet there's also a vulnerability, you know, a very human individual vulnerability in being able to do that because to delve into some of the case studies that you speak to in the book so you have the example of Eugene who receives discrimination from both sides of the racial divide he's told that he's not black enough he's told he's you know he's half blood he's half something and that can be I suppose as an individual who's never felt accepted by any group it can be a vulnerable thing to powerfully assert that biracial identity if that part of you if part of you still wants to feel accepted and as if you belong of course Uh, and in eugene's case of course um uh, he was born 1955 as i recall so you know that was a bit of a different era okay so he was essentially growing up in the you know 60s early 70s so then again i come to the fact that it's a matter of numbers Okay, Um, uh, when it comes to demographics and all these racial ethnic issues, it's really a matter of numbers. So then, like I said, there were really very few mixed race people around. Okay, and so he had essentially little to no power in asserting, you know, in asserting his identities and was completely at the mercy of both the white group and the black group in his case, when it comes to defining his identity. What has really changed now, you know, it's the numbers. Okay, there's now millions of us. So when you go out on the streets and you see loads of people who look like you or look similar to you or who you can see essentially, yeah, you know, these are people who are mixed like me. They don't even have to be my particular mix. okay? they don't even have to be, you know, the offspring of black and white parents. But it could be somebody I see, oh, looks probably mixed Indian English or mixed Indian Scottish, you know, subconsciously. That creates that, um, it it gives you a confidence that, you know, oh, you know, I'm not alone here, or there are not just a few of us here. There's actually many of us here. And there's probably many of us here who think like me and who feel like me, you know, who are experiencing this, at least in relatively similar ways to me. So I can't speak about this without being afraid that if I do so, I'll get, you know, um, uh, condemned into um, uh, um, uh, abandoned, you know, in no man's land, and basically, you know, will have no friends and nobody um, uh, and nobody to speak to, you know. So, so those numbers they really work on the psyche, you know. They really work on the psyche. So, when I was growing up in Nigeria, for instance, of course, there's ex- very few mixed race people in Nigeria, you know, uh, and so I didn't have that kind of comfort. You didn't have that kind of comfort. You knew there were just really, literally, a few of us, you know. But here, if we're talking about, um, uh, you know, you, everywhere you go, especially in the bigger cities. And of course, this will be different, you know. So for people who live in 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 in, in smaller towns, you know, there, there, there will be fewer um, mixed race people. But really, I think it's difficult. And from my travels in the UK, uh, I would I would I would emphasize this: it's difficult, you know, to go to any major or semi-major city uh, in the UK and not see a sizable number of mixed um, uh, of of mixed race people. You know, so this is where I know, or I I know, and I hope. Uh, the confidence will come from to be able to speak out about that. And, you know, it starts with, you know, one person speaking out, you know, saying how they really feel. And then, you know, another person will say, oh, you know, so perhaps I, and you know, okay, you know, he didn't get his head chopped off or she didn't get her head chopped off. So maybe I can also say how I feel, 
you know, and that's and then you have a snowball effect, yeah. And then all of a sudden you have people coming out and saying, look, you know, this is how I feel, this is how I identify. And then at some point in time, it stops becoming a big deal, you know. Uh, so, so, so the demographics and the numbers play a huge role in deciding, you know, how this how this plays out. Yeah, but of course, of course, there you know there is. I do understand, you know, the difficulty of that because, of course once you say once you identify as biracial you also do assert your individuality a lot more you do in a sense there is not a rejection so much but a refusal to be entirely defined by a community isn't there and do you think that everyone is necessarily strong enough and able to do that you know, not everyone will be, of course. And, you know, and even, even if we're dealing with, even if we're talking about monoracial individuals, somebody who is, you know, uh, completely white or completely black, those people also face issues of, you know, how much can they assert their individuality, you know, within the racial in-group, okay? Because, you know, there might be certain um, uh, agendas, the larger in-group might have a certain line which it feels should be taken. And if you step out of line, you will, you know, face some kind of um, uh, some kind of anger from the group, okay? Uh, so if, for instance, a, a Black person um, uh, today comes out and says something on race, which, let's say, 80% or 90% of Black people disagree with, you know, strongly, you know, that person is going to face some pushback. You know, they will not face the kind of pushback a biracial person would face. So the biracial person will face the pushback of, ah, yeah, but, you know, he or she, you know, they're not really one of us in the first place anyway. So, you know, that's why they're just talking like that. They're they're not really black. That's why they're talking like that. So he or she, the black person, he or she won't face that particular kind of pushback, but they will face different kinds of pushback. You know, they they may be called a coconut or people will say, oh, you know, you're just trying to suck up to white people. You know, they, they will face some kind of pushback. So, you know, so it's not only us as biracial people who face this this um, challenge of asserting your uh, individuality before the tribe. You know, everybody faces it. Perhaps for us, it's more complicated because of that fact that, you know, we're mixed and we can get told, ah, you're not really one of us anyway, you know. Uh, but it's a challenge and it's something we must, uh, look, people in history have faced um, uh, much huger challenges, you know I mean? Come on, hundreds of years ago, you know, people could get killed for speaking their mind. So, you know, so the fact um, and now we face much smaller challenges, you know, people might call you names on social media, you know, that's not the end of the world, really. Uh, so if you look at things from that kind of perspective, you know, I know I can speak my mind. Perhaps some people will not like it, but, you know, nobody's going to throw me in jail, for God's sake, you know, nobody's going to, you know, put me before a firing squad. So things are better now. And, you know, I should be able to, to say what I think. And I think, like I said, again, one person says what they think, second person, third person, fourth person, and then the fifth, sixth, and seventh pers- people or person uh, gets, you know, courage to be able to say what they think. And, you know, like if you put this, like I said, if you look at the wider perspective of human history, you know, the the um, uh, the, the, the pushback or the con- negative consequences uh, are not, you know, that drastic that, you know, we, we, we should be so scared into, into submission, so to speak. Yeah. There was so much in this book that... I had never considered before. Your book is very unique. And you are one of the first to write about this experience of being biracial in in a way that is so, as you say, driven by how it's felt. It's not just Mm -hmm. an academic text, even though, of course, you are, you know, you are an academic. And Mm -hmm. yet what you're interested in is that experience of how people feel. There's also, for me, very much a theme of the loneliness of 
you know, feeling that you're perhaps granted insight into multiple worlds, but but not feeling like you have full access to both those worlds in a community sense. Is that loneliness something that you've experienced in the past as well? Oh, definitely. Again, it's sort of, um, so, okay, so let's say growing up in Lagos in Nigeria, uh, where there are very few of us um, mixed race people, I could probably sometimes go weeks uh, without thinking or remembering the fact that I was mixed race, because, you know, once nobody brings up your identity, you don't remember it, you don't think about it. You only think about it if somebody brings it up. But then someone might, you know, make a comment um, uh, here or there uh, in another week, and then, you know, I'd think about it. Uh, so there were definitely those, there is definitely that feeling of otherness, that 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 will that is there, definitely, and, and probably will always be there. For people, for, for, for people who are mixtures, you are always, you know, a little bit on the outside. And I guess it's how we choose to deal with that, how we choose to deal with that feeling of otherness, how important group affiliations remain in our lives. OK, so as you say, luckily for me, I was able to sort of uh, evolve, perhaps is the word um, we might use or, or grow into, uh, if you prefer a sort of state of mind in which group affiliations, tribal affiliations don't really mean that much to me, honestly speaking. They don't really mean that much to me. I don't feel that need, you know, to be accepted by quote unquote black people as one of us or to be accepted by quote unquote white people as one of us or to be accepted by any group of people as quote unquote one of us. I really don't care, honestly speaking. And I'm not saying this in a, in a nasty way. I'm saying it simply because I don't feel that need you know, and I guess this is perhaps because I've been lucky to have a, a, a meet a wonderful person and get married to a wonderful person, uh, so my wife I, I, I'm talking about. And, you know, once I met her and since I met her, I've never felt lonely in my life. I've never felt that. And what matters to me now is, you know, what she thinks, what our family thinks, what my friends think, what sort of my small personal community thinks about me. You see, that's what really matters. Not what some abstract, quote unquote, black community thinks about me or some abstract, quote unquote, white community thinks about me. These are people I don't even know, for God's sake. Mm. You know, so, 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 so that's just it. So it simply doesn't matter that much to me. Yes. It's so powerful that just one or two people saying something that you don't necessarily believe to be true or to be sort of invalidating of your experience, but they can have a powerful effect on how you feel and how you identify and how accepted you feel as part of a group. Um, So what you say about creating that small personal community and that sense of belonging that comes from that small community. I like that. I like the idea that that can perhaps strengthen and reinforce that sense of identity. Talking of the idea of being alone in a broader sense, as someone growing up biracial, or indeed, you know, as someone just navigating your identity in any way growing up, what do you think that the role of alone time plays in working out who you are? I think it's important. So um, uh, obviously there's a difference in uh, feeling lonely and uh, spending alone time, like you say. Uh, so I definitely had um, moments in my childhood, as I say, you know, raised as a single kid when I definitely felt lonely. And uh, and that perhaps also had some, uh, I mean, it makes you a more introspective person, I guess. 
uh, I had a lot of conversations with myself out loud. Uh, usually, usually not where other people could hear. So you know, I wouldn't <laughs> get um, locked up in some institution or something. Um, uh, but I had a lot of conversations um, uh, with myself. So it, it it breeds in you definitely a kind of also introspective nature. Uh, even though I would say I, I, I like mixing with people and 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 definitely and all that. So it does it does it does give you that in the sense of you think a lot. Simply that's it. You know, if you spend a lot of time with people, when you're spending time with people, you're not really thinking, okay? Because you're talking. You know, they say this and you say that and you are engaged in conversation. Uh, but if you spend time alone, you think a lot. And so I've always been somebody who's thought a lot, you know. So I'd spend hours um, sitting down in my room um, uh, in, in, in Nigeria, there, you know, simply thinking about this or that. Sometimes about the most banal things in the world, you know, not always, not always about something um, uh, incredibly clever or complicated. But, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking. Uh, and I think that has helped me. It's helped me to sort of, navigate um, uh, navigate the world and 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 try and understand the world and what's happening around me so that's definitely been good but there, there were also um, definitely moments in my life and I think a lot of people um, uh, have this when uh, you know if if things are not going the way you'd like them to go in your life uh, you can't actually be afraid of spending time alone because you're afraid of the thoughts that come into your head uh, because they can be sad thoughts or depressing thoughts and so you try to avoid that. You do everything to avoid that. And so, you know, you watch a lot of TV or you make sure you're constantly with people. You constantly try to make sure there's noise around you. So you don't have to sit and listen to the thoughts in your head. And that's definitely not a good place to be. And I've been in that kind of place before. Uh, thankfully, I'm not anymore. And uh, it's, it's difficult for me to think now, you know, what I could tell people who are in that place. I guess if you are in that place, you simply need to um, I, I guess it does make sense to try and uh, speak to someone or some people about it, uh, try and figure out why you're feeling that way and what are the possible solutions to improving how you're feeling. Uh, but that's something which I know I know people, um, uh, people definitely um, uh, struggle with. So the best place you can be is the place where you're not afraid of sitting down alone in the room and your thoughts and the thoughts that will come to your head. Uh, and, and, and at this point in time, I am at that place. And so I definitely, I, the, the, my best time of the day when I enjoy spending alone time is sometime around after midnight. So when the world has gone to bed, or the world around me at least, um, has gone to bed and it's quiet, you know, and there's no cars outside, you know, there's nothing. It's just, it's just a nice kind of, it's just a nice kind of um, silence. Uh, and then I like to, you know, lie on the couch or something and either think or watch uh, Netflix uh, or series or something but just you know that uh, that that quiet which is around me and um, I enjoy it and I think it's 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 important and it's important perhaps especially if things are not going well in our lives or not going the way we would like them to go it's actually still is important uh, to spend that alone time because you need to ask yourself hard questions you know you need to ask yourself okay how is it I would like my life to be? What is it exactly? How, how would I like my life to look? Does my life look this way? No. Why? What are the reasons that my life doesn't look the way I would like to look? And then next key question, what have I done to make my life look the way it looks today, which is not the way I would like it to look? What is it that I've done to aid this process? And what can I do to make it stop looking the way I wouldn't like it to look? and start looking the way I would like it to look. It's very, it, it's very important to ask ourselves this question, and this can sometimes be very difficult questions, because sometimes the answer to that 
can be an answer which is going to uh, impose a lot of demands on us in the future if we want to change things, you know, because it's easy to sit down and blame others for our problems. It's easy to sit down and blame the world for our problems or blame the fact that we were born, you know, too tall or too short or too black or, or too white or too poor or whatever. Uh, it's very easy to do that. And uh, sometimes, of course, circumstances can make people's lives hell. I'm not saying, you know, everybody can achieve anything they want and, and all that. You know, that's, uh, you know, um, that's not exactly the reality. It's not exactly the case. There are people born in, in terrible circum into terrible circumstances. Um, but still, it is important uh, for us to sit down and try and find out what we can do, you know, to honestly answer what have I done to make things go wrong? And how can I improve them? You know, that's really important. And that is a question only you can answer yourself. Nobody can tell you that. Because only you know everything you've done in your life. Others don't know that. Even the best psychiatrist in the world or the best psychologist in the world doesn't know the things you've done in your life, Francesca. They only know what you tell them. But you know everything you've done in your life. And if you actually ask yourself honest questions then you can come up with some honest answers that can actually help you moving forward. And what about someone who is struggling with their identity, perhaps from, perhaps from a biracial perspective, and they spend a lot of time hearing what people might say, that people might tell them that they are, you know, are not black enough, for instance, or are not enough part of a community. Do you think that that alone time can almost help them build a core of themselves which helps them deal with that with that you know being told from the outside world that they're not enough do you think that that alone time plays a purpose in then strengthening their identity to go back out into the world I think so I think especially if you ask yourself the right questions uh like okay why is this happening to me uh and is this something which only happens to me or which also happens to other people if it all, most things which happen to us also happen to other people. Uh, so if this is also happening to other people, what exactly are the human mechanisms driving this kind of behavior? Why do people act this way? Okay, so these are the kinds of questions I uh, ask myself later about being biracial. Okay, if people are telling me this, that, oh, you're not black enough, etc. Why exactly are they telling me this? Because I'm probably not the only person in the world who's hearing these kinds of things. And it's probably not only black people who say these kinds of things or only white people who say these kinds of things. So why do people say these kinds of things? Uh, what is it that's going through their head to make them say these kinds of things? What are the emotions going through their head? What's the psychology behind all this? You know, so if you start and sort of and, and, and don't treat yourself as an individual, you know, we all have unique uh, experiences. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, human behavior is very similar. OK, across the world. And so if you think about yourself, not at this sort of, you know, individual entity who is only experiencing something which nobody else has ever experienced or is not ex or nobody else is experiencing the world over. But actually, you are part of this larger picture of this larger picture, you're a tiny part of this larger picture of human behavior, you know, and you try and look at things from that big picture. And say, Why do people do this? You know, what are they trying to get from this? What what psychological gains do they make from this? You know, if you look at things from that kind of big picture in your alone time when you're thinking, then, of course, that can help you sort of, you know, situate yourself in the world and then come out the next day and not see yourself as, oh, you know, I, Remy, I'm this, you know, terrible victim of a world which is out to destroy me, Remy, you know, <laughs> because nobody wakes up in the morning thinking about, you know, how they're going to destroy Remy's life. Remy's life, and they think about how they're going to, you know, sort out their own life, uh, and how they treat me, sort of, you know, just by the way, 
for them. So if, if, if you're able to, you know, go out in the morning and not see yourself as this, you know, individual who is uniquely um, uh, being, being treated badly, but as part of this wider picture, then it helps you to also deal with things and not perhaps take things so personally, you know. It's important. I know it's difficult because we all have feelings and, you know, I'm not saying I have this distance towards everything and I don't take anything personal. That's nonsense. Of course, that's not the truth. Uh, but I try as much as possible not to take things too personally, you know. And so if somebody might say something um, to me that, you know, could be mean or doesn't make me, um, uh, or, or makes me not feel good, I try not to, you know, take it that personally, but to analyze why is this person actually doing this, you know? Yeah. And that makes it easier to deal with various things. Yeah. Because of course, you know, there, there is, I suppose that, you know, the, the word alone has a lot of connotations. And one of the negative connotations or one of the negative versions of feeling alone is when you feel that you are the only one to experience something and I think that's of course why your book is going to have such a powerful impact because it it gives a sort of a union towards people feeling that they're you know made to feel lesser than or not part of something um you know to to, because of because they're biracial It, it, it gives people it gives mixed race people almost a community in order to feel kind of combined in that more complicated, but of course, equally more enriching identity. Of course, and that's one of the things I wanted to do. Unfortunately, when I was growing up, there were no books like this, um, uh, which is one of the reasons why I wanted I, I wanted to write this. There was nothing, you know, I could read to, you know, see the experiences of other mixtures. People be like, aha, so, you know, it's not just me, etc. One good thing, though, uh, which I haven't talked about, which I did have, was the fact that I did mix with other mixed race kids uh, in Nigeria, you know, growing up, yeah. So my mom had, you know, friends from Poland, very, um, uh, quite a couple of um, uh, friends, you know, from Poland, you know, German woman, um, uh, a different um, uh, European um, uh, friends who she had, who, you know, had married Nigerian men and they had mixed race kids, you know. So, you know, on birthdays or, or, or other events or, you know, my, my mom's birthday or parents' wedding anniversary, et cetera, you know, first communion, you know, um, uh, we, we'd, we, we'd often meet, you know, simply as, as, um, as, as family friends, you know. So I did have family friends who were other mixed race kids that I could mix with. And of course, there was that sort of shared bond between us because we were experiencing similar kinds of things um, uh, growing up mixed race in Nigeria. Yeah. So, so while in my home, I was growing up um, a, a single child de facto, I, there, there were other mixed race people I could miss, and that definitely helped. That definitely helped, yeah, because I, I knew I wasn't the only one. You know, there weren't many of us, definitely, uh, but I wasn't the only one. So that definitely helped, but it would have hugely helped if I'd been able to sit down and r- read a book uh, about, about, about other such um, kids like myself. And finally, when is the first time in your life that you remember alone time feeling like a positive experience uh this would be when i was um uh, really very young and this would be pre-teenage years uh when i'd uh so i'd i'd, I'd walk around um, a compound in our house uh in lagos you know having like i said um uh, these um uh, discussions you know um uh, various discussions and debates with myself and anytime i felt the discussion was going well or i'd sort of advance the debate in my head uh, I'd feel happy, you know, 
I'd feel happy and be like, yeah, that's um, uh, yeah, that's that's good, man. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that's exactly <laughs> how it works, actually. You know, I I I I tell myself that, and 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 at those kind of moments, I felt um, uh, I felt positive, and I you know, and, and I'd come out the next time, you know, feeling cleverer and feeling um, uh, feeling more positive about everything. Yeah, and so that's I mean, that sounds to me like what that's when you're forming yourself as an academic. That alone mm. time is when you form that ability to kind of have that independent academic thought. Yeah, I think so. Because like I say, I mean, from, I don't know, 9, 10, uh, like I said, I'd have this um, uh, debate out loud, like I say, um, uh, with myself. And, you know, why does this work that way? Oh, well, it probably works that way because of, you know, X and Y. Nah, that doesn't make sense. It can't work that way because of X and Y. It's probably actually because of, you know, A and B. Nah, come on. It's X and Y, and uh, and I'd have these kinds of uh, debates, and and I think this has helped me, and it's helped me in you know the way I think you know about race because I'm simply biologically incapable. Biologically is probably not the right word. I'm simply incapable of thinking about issues like race and identity from a single perspective. You know, uh, only from a single perspective. So I can't see from various perspectives, but I'm capable of thinking about it only from a single perspective you know, and seeing only from, from one point of view, so, so I don't know, from the white point of view or, or from the black point of view or from just the Nigerian point of view or just the European point of view. Uh, it's, it's something which, you know, I'm simply not capable of doing. Uh, and and I think, you know, those debates I used to have in my head on, on different things, which included also issues like um, uh, race and identity, uh, have definitely helped me in, in, uh, that, um, uh, in that sense. And that inability to only see things from one perspective, do you think that's solely because you're biracial or do you think that's because you're Remy or do you think, why do you think that is? I think the biracial thing is, um, is, uh, is a huge thing because you see every environment, every community, every nation, every ethnic group, so every community um, is the best word here, has their own uh, moral matrix, you know? So stories they tell themselves again about how the world works you know, how things should be, how they are. And the thing about being biracial is, so I was raised um, uh, so, so in Nigeria, so I'm growing up. So, you know, so of course there's a Nigerian moral matrix. There's popular thinkings, of course, not one single Nigerian moral matrix, but popular thinkings about how things are and how things should be, you know. But the thing is growing up uh, in a home with a Polish mom, I was exposed to a perspective that was completely different from that Nigerian moral matrix that saw things in a completely different way, you know. So while my peers, people I was growing up with, you know, full Nigerian kids were only exposed to that Nigerian moral matrix and in their homes would only be listening to discussions embedded within the Nigerian moral matrix. I had access to discussions completely outside the Nigerian moral matrix, you know, which helped me to also see things from outside and to see that, you know, the way people think the world works here, that's not exactly the way the world works everywhere. That's simply the way they think it works, you know, uh, and that exposes you to a whole different sort of level of um, uh, of um, uh, understanding, and also, but but importantly, you know, it, it shows you that really people can think very differently in different places, and if you don't have that biracial thing, you're simply not exposed to that. Well, Remy, thank you so much. This has been such a great interview. Enjoyed it myself.
Thank you so much for listening. Remember that eye-rolling cliche as it is, sharing really is caring. So if you enjoyed this episode and think others would benefit from it too, click the share button to send it to a friend or post the link on social media. That's all for now. Until next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.